The reading today is the Ten Vows, based on the teachings of Thich Nhat Hanh. The Ten Vows. Number one. Aware of the suffering caused by enslavement to things and ideas and narrowness of heart and mind, I vow to open my heart with compassion, my mind with wisdom, and to free myself from all addictions and compulsive behaviors, both material and spiritual. Vow two, aware of the suffering caused by gods created in my own image for my own profit, I vow to recognize all ideas of God as human notions bound by history and circumstance and forever incapable of defining reality. Vow three, aware of the suffering caused by the misuse of God and religion in the quest for power, I vow to liberate myself from all ideologies that demonize others and to honor only those teachings that uphold the freedom and dignity of woman, man, and nature as the manifestations of Yahweh and the happenings of all happening. Vow four, aware of the suffering caused by slavish attachment to work, consumption, and technology, I vow to set aside a Sabbath for personal freedom, creativity, reconnecting with nature, loved ones, and play. Vow five, aware of the suffering caused by old age, I vow to declare to care for my parents to the best of my ability and to promote the dignity and well-being of all elderly people. Vow six, aware of the suffering caused by violence, I vow to cultivate gentleness in all my actions. Vow seven, aware of the suffering caused by sexual exploitation, I vow never to degrade another through irresponsible or deceitful use of sexuality. Vow eight, Aware of the suffering caused by injustice, theft, and oppression, I vow to respect the property of others, to promote the just sharing of resources, and to cultivate generosity in myself and my community. Vow nine. Aware of the suffering caused by hurtful speech, I vow to speak truthfully with compassion, and to avoid gossip, slander, and discordant speech. Vow 10, aware of the suffering caused by endless desire, I vow to live simply, to avoid debt, and to own only that which brings me joy. Rami. So I'll say good morning in a minute first.
I have to set the timer. Oh, no, there's a clock. Okay, I don't. I was afraid I was going to go on and on and on. And now I still go on and on and on, but at least I'll know how far over I am. So good morning. It is delightful to be back here again. Nicholas, thank you for for having me. I don't usually do... I don't usually give away the punchline of my talks till, till the end, but I don't want to bury the lead. So I'm going to tell you the three things that I want to accomplish this morning, and then we'll go back and we'll actually accomplish them. I want you to, at the end of this presentation, I want you to, to begin to shift your language, to shift in three, in three words. I want you to stop using the word surrender in the context of spirituality, and start to use the word surrendered. Second, I want to shift from melancholy to sublime melancholy. melancholy, And I want to shift, the third one is, from perfection to wabi-sabi. So that's, I threw a little Japanese in there, but that'll help us, that'll help us with all of that. To get in the, the mood for what I want to have happen here to make these shifts, Let's start with a simple chant. So some of you will know this because I use it all the time. And maybe for some it'll be new, but you'll pick it up right away. And anyone who's live streaming, as opposed to what, dead streaming? Yeah, right. So, so congratulations if you're live streaming. <laughs> Condolences if you're dead streaming. But I want to start with this chant. So the words are ha-rachaman. Just try that. Ha-rachaman means the compassionate one. And then the other word is hare, which means to behold, hare. So harachaman and then hare. And then when we get to the hare part, I want you to turn to people and lightly tap them on the forehead because what we're chanting is, may you behold compassion. And some of us are asleep. You know, even if you're actually here, you may be dead streaming. So some of us are, are really not yet awake or alive. So help, help the person wake up by tapping them on the third eye, lightly, no concussions, no damage. And we'll, we'll just sing and we'll move around. You can, you can do that to the people in your vicinity. So this is how it goes. You can join me when, when you get it. Harachaman, harachaman. Harachaman, hare, hare, harachaman. So let's try that. Harachaman, 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 hare, hare, harachaman, harachaman. Harachaman, Harachaman, Hare Hare, Harachaman. So don't keep pounding on the same head, just find more heads. Harachaman, 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 Hare Hare, Harachaman, 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 Hare Hare, Harachaman. 
Okay, so we're trying to create this spirit of compassion that will help us make these three frame shifts. I don't know if you're familiar with a guy named George Lakoff. He wrote a book called Don't Think of an Elephant. And of course, as soon as I tell you not to think of an elephant, an elephant pops into your head. So when someone tells you in some spiritual workshop or something, you must control your thoughts, forget that. Right? Because you can prove it can't be done. Just don't think of a naked skier going down Aspen Mountain <laughs> with the wind. And, right? Don't think of that. Anybody not thinking of that? <laughs> the only way you know you're not thinking of it is if you've already thought of it, and then you're saying no. So I just realized... No, no, you're running this. Thank you. So George Lakoff says he has this, this, he's a linguist, He's also a Democratic, um, I guess, consultant with the Democratic Party. And his whole thing is about shifting language to shift consciousness. And he talks about frames. So frames are the, the blinders that we wear that keep us from seeing anything that we don't want to see, to see a worldview that we have not accepted. So, and, and frames can be liberal, frames can be conservative, frames can be enlivening, frames can be... Uh, you know, obsessive or, or, or exploitative. And I've identified these three frames by using these three words, and I'm trying to shift our consciousness just by changing the words. We're going to shift from the frame of surrender to the frame of being surrendered. So in spirituality, we talk a lot about surrender, right? We're going to surrender to God. We're going to surrender. If you're in a 12-step program, you know, you, you turn your your addiction, you surrender uh, to, to your higher power, or more accurately, you surrender to God as you understand God. It sounds right. But when you think about even just the, the wording of you know, surrendering to God as you understand God, the God of your understanding is not God. It's just the God of your understanding. It's just your ego coming up with something bigger than itself, but it's just a product of itself. And so when you surrender to that, you're just giving yourself over to yourself, but you're denying that you're doing it. (laughs) For more on that, read my book on 12-step recovery as a spiritual process. So I won't get sidetracked, but if anyone is in recovery and you love the 12 steps, as I do, my point, and you have to read the book to get the whole thing, uh, my point is that at the heart of all spiritual, authentic spiritual practice is a big turnaround. And you only can get there through paradox. And that's what Bill W. does. He takes you into this place where you're surrendering to yourself, and then you realize that isn't it, and then something else happens. So to find out something else that happens, buy my book, Recovery, the Sacred Art, available in your local bookstore. Or wherever nonsensical books are sold. (laughs) All right. So we always talk about surrender. I would like to shift it to surrendered. My argument is you cannot surrender because the you that you want to surrender is the you that must do the surrendering, right? I can't turn myself over to God because the I that's going to turn myself over is the self I want to turn over. It can't be done. You can only be surrendered, but you cannot surrender. It's not a willful act. In the opening line of Genesis, we're told that the nature of reality is tohu vavohu. Tohu, not tofu, 
<laughs> oh, it's just tofu. I understand that. Tohu means that reality is fundamentally, irrevocably wild, chaotic, and uncontrollable. And the notion that you can make your life the way you want it without reality breaking through is probably a notion that will drive you nuts for the rest of your life. It's all about control, and you have no control in a world of tohu vavohu. You have no control in a world that that is fundamentally chaotic. In many religious traditions, they start with chaos. It could be a monster, a dragon, or a god that's gone mad. And ultimately, the monster, or the dragon, or the god is slain, and out of the carcass of dead chaos, order is created. But the Bible is very different. The Bible doesn't say that at all. The Bible says that when God starts to create the, the, the universe, that the world is wild and unformed and chaotic and sort of mad. And God doesn't kill it. God just talks over it. God says, let there be light, let the dry land separate from the waters, let there be you know, sun and all that other stuff. The Bible says that the world that you and I encounter is simply a linguistic veneer over a more fundamental chaos. And it's constantly breaking through. When it breaks through, you have a choice, I guess. You can fight it, get a lot of um, you know, masking tape and just put it over there and don't let it get through as best you can. Or you can allow yourself to be surrendered to it. The nature of reality is one that is inviting you to be surrendered. And it does it by breaking you down. When you can no longer resist, I mean, you've tried everything, but when you can no longer resist the madness of the world in which we live, you become surrendered to it. Now, that may sound like now you acquiesce to madness, but the truth is, it's like a keto. I don't know if anyone ever studied a keto, but a keto is the one martial art it's, it's like the opposite of karate. Karate, when someone throws a punch at you in karate, you block the punch and you hit them back. You have to stop the other person's energy. You have to stop the direction they're going in. But in Aikido, you don't do that. You don't have an opponent. You have a dance partner. In Aikido, when a person makes the mistake of attacking, because really, that's, if you attack in Aikido, you lose if, if, the, if your partner is good. So, you know, the person makes, makes a move against you, and you just step into that move, and you take the direction in which they seem to be going, and you let them go. You just get out of the way, but you help them along, and they fall over, and you win. But you have to be surrendered to the process. You can't stop it. That's karate. You can't try to resist it. You can't try to overpower it, because it's always bigger than you. But you can work in alignment with it, and you come out on top. The the best example that I can think of, at least at the moment, is weebles. They have weebles in England? Yes. Okay. So what's the motto for the weebles? What? No. Weebles wobble, but they don't fall down. That's what it is to be surrendered. Life wobbles you around, but you keep coming back to center because you're not resisting. So the first thing, the first shift I want to make is stop thinking in terms of I must surrender and realize that life is inviting you to be surrendered. Life wants you to be surrendered. Does that sort of make sense? Okay, I'll take, I'll take my word for it. <laughs> it makes sense. <laughs> now I want to switch from melancholy 
to sublime melancholy. And sublime melancholy is this notion that actually comes from wabi-sabi. We're going to go back into that as a third thing. But in, in the notion of wabi-sabi, everything, beauty is in the imperfection. And the notion of sublime melancholy, melancholy by itself is sort of sad and depressive and you walk around going, oh, you know, life sucks. Sublime melancholy is being surrendered to the actual nature of reality, its brokenness, its impermanence, and finding peace in that. So I'll give you another biblical line. So we'll move from Genesis to Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes says that life as you and I experience it is havel. In most Bibles, English Bibles, it'll say meaningless. And Ecclesiastes writes, hakol havel, havel havelim, hakol havel, meaninglessness upon meaninglessness, everything is meaningless. Or vanity upon vanity, everything is vanity. Or basically, life sucks, it sucks even worse than I thought, it really sucks. I mean, that's maybe a modern translation. But it's the wrong use of the word havel. The Hebrew doesn't mean vanity or meaninglessness or any of those things. What it says, what, what havel is, is connected to two things. One is the breath. That life is as impermanent as your breath. And two, it's connected to um, dew, morning dew. So, you know, the, the dew comes up in the morning, but by 10 o'clock it's gone. So it's insubstantiality, impermanence, nothing lasts. And you can go through the entire book, which I suggest you do, by reading my translation of Ecclesiastes called, yeah, but, um, but you go through the book of Ecclesiastes with the notion that what he's talking about, and I am the only person who translates it this way, but the Hebrew, I'm, the Hebrew is what I'm saying. You go through the book of Ecclesiastes and he's telling you how to live in a world that's in constant flux, where nothing lasts. All relationships end for one reason or another. All businesses end for one reason or another. Everything you do comes to an end. How do you live with that impermanence? Again, you can fight it or you can be surrendered to it. You cannot surrender yourself, but reality will surrender you. And when you're surrendered to the chaos, you learn, again, to go back to the wobbling. You learn to just flow with it. There's no resistance. But it's not simple acquiescence. It's learning how to work with the very nature of reality. So the book of Ecclesiastes basically comes up with his personal, because the book is written for individuals, not societies, but you could extrapolate from what he says to, to a larger community. But he says, once you, live, once you know that everything is impermanent and you have to live with this impermanence, how do you live? So he says, you have to eat and drink simply. There's no point in... in you know, stockpiling food, because you have to eat and drink simply. You have to dress, he says you should dress in, in white, by which he means you, you should have clean clothes. You should uh, have oiled hair, which is, you, you care about how you look. I mean, you, you, you try to look presentable. He says you should find work that brings you joy, and you should cultivate two or three good friends. Now, the only, those things are pretty self-explanatory, except the good, two or three good friends. It's the book is not exactly clear whether he's talking about platonic friends or friends with benefits. Because he says, on the one hand, he says, like if you fall down and you don't have a friend, nobody helps you up. 
unless you have that lifeline thing you can push. Help, you know, I've fallen down and I can't get up. But if you have a friend, a friend can lift you up. And then he says, to, to, to survive in a healthy way the chaos and the impermanence of things, if you have a couple of friends, then they, they provide you with some kind of support and they help you through the wobbling and keep you from falling down. But then he says, he talks about them keeping you warm at night in bed. So that's when it gets a little, what's he talking about exactly? So you have to make your own decision about that. And remember, it's two or, or three friends in bed, so you might, you, might want to, you might want to think this through before you, you, you take it one way or the other. So we want to move from surrender to surrendered, from melancholy to sublime melancholy, because when you live this surrendered life with the brokenness of things, you're not depressed, you're, you're actually more compassionate. And the reason is, compassion means shared suffering. When I'm in this state of sublime melancholy, I can actually feel more effectively the brokenness of the world. Does that make sense to you? When I, when I was listening to the music that you played earlier, it seemed to me that was an example of sublime melancholy. The, the music brought us into a meditative state. The music brought us into a place where, at least in my case, I wasn't trying to do anything. I was simply surrendered to the music itself. And what I felt by listening to it was, I, I don't want to overstate it, but something like the brokenness of life. And that brought me a sense of, of, of joy. I mean, these are all, it's paradoxical, and I get that. But there's a joy in the brokenness. There's a joy in, in suffering and in being able to feel other people's suffering. Not the way it is on Facebook where you hear other people suffering and you go, yay, I'm good. But it's, it's the kind of suffering that allows you to reach out and help somebody. It allows you to say, I'm broken too. Which brings me to the third shift from perfection to imperfection, but better, to wabi-sabi. Wabi-sabi means the beauty of imperfection. It's a Japanese aesthetic. So when you go to, well, I don't know about you, when I go to a store and I go to buy mugs or something, if a mug is chipped, I'm not buying it because it's broken. I don't want to buy a broken mug. In wabi-sabi, it's the chip that gives it its, its purpose and its meaning and its beauty. Brokenness is the heart of Beauty, not perfection. So imperfection is the heart of beauty. You ever see those, the Japanese have this gorgeous art. I guess it's a kind of art. They take things that are cracked and they fill the cracks with gold. And they don't, they don't get rid of the cracks. In America, we would try to glue it together and let the cracks show. They want to highlight the cracks and make the cracks the beauty. That's wabi-sabi. In the New Testament, Jesus says, Matthew 5.48, if I'm not mistaken, if I am mistaken, <laughs> sue me. Uh, I'm a rabbi. What do I know about you know, the New Testament? <laughs> but in the New Testament, Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So if you read it just sort of on the surface, it's impossible. How can you be perfect the way God is perfect? And maybe you don't even believe in God, but just give Jesus the benefit of the doubt. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The key word for me is as. Not perfect or God, but as. How is God perfect? My understanding of the divine is that divine is everything, that God includes brokenness. God includes imperfection. God is perfect, not at the expense of the imperfect, 
but with the imperfect. God is not unbroken. God is not only broken. God has got to be the yin and the yang. God has got to be that which holds together brokenness and and unbrokenness, imperfection and perfection. God is perfect in a way that allows all the cracks through which Leonard Cohen tells us the light comes through. God is that which allows us to be broken and doesn't have to have us either fix ourselves or doesn't even try to fix us. Because when you're in that God consciousness, when you've put on the mind of Christ, when you're able to see reality as it truly is, you realize that the brokenness is where the beauty is. The brokenness is where the love is. People who are perfect, A, are lying. But people who pretend to be perfect, I can't relate to them. I, they make me very nervous. They, they're, they're all about power and control is, is my experience with them. But people who are imperfect, people who know they're broken, people who have hit rock bottom and had the grace of being shattered by life and surrendered to the reality of our brokenness, those people are the people I love the most because those are the people who can love the most. So those are the three shifts I want to make from surrender to surrender, from, what was the second one? (laughs) Melancholy to sublime melancholy, and perfection to wabi-sabi. So it's just throw wabi-sabi out to your friends. It's just, what? What is that? They'll think it's a spice. <laughs> and, but it's not, not in this context. If we can make those three shifts, and this is just the wrap-up, if you can make those three shifts, compassion becomes the norm of your life. It's not that you have to try to be compassionate. It's that you've shifted from one worldview where compassion is a struggle and a chore and a practice to another worldview where compassion is just what happens, where compassion is unavoidable. So I want to end with chanting the compassion chant again, and we'll bring it to a close. Harachaman Arachaman, Arachaman, Are Hare, Arachaman, 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 Are Hare. Thank you. So let's pray. So we look over our broken and difficult world. We do pray that we're able to make some contribution by being with that broken and beautiful world. That we may be able to take those three steps. That we may be able to open ourselves and contain in a surrendered way what's going on. We pray that some of our leaders may have a similar ability to open their hearts to the brokenness around them. Pray for those 
with broken hearts, people who are the effect of violence, difficulty, injustice, people in prison, people in war zones, particularly think of Syria. Think of people in hospitals, people with no way out from how they feel or what's going on around them. We pray that our lives may be of relevance in some little way to them, that the way we conduct ourselves may in some way just change the circumstances around us. Do pray for our town at the moment. Pray for all those on the mountain, either working or playing. Particularly pray for all those involved in the Shining Stars program in the town at the moment. Pray for all the children, all the workers, all the buddies. And just pray that their light may come through into those children's hearts, into their parents' hearts, and into the lives of people around them. Pray for those people in our community who are suffering at the moment, particularly pray for Tricia Nichols, for Patricia Hill, for Will Welsh. Pray for Barbara Orcutt and Tegan Sullivan, for Mary-Kate Brewster, for Soleil, for Lee Bouguet, for Betty Vanderveer, for Gary Daniel, for Sandy St. John. Pray for Father Joseph Boyle and Father Thomas Keating. For Bill Archer. For Ken Hammersley, Laurel Cattis, father with cancer. Pray for the family of Dan Fegan, killed on 82 last Sunday. Those recovering. Pray for Nathan Morse, who's suffering from schizophrenia. Pray for Sophie Leighton, a four-year-old with stage four cancer in town. For Julie Paxton, who's been ill for four weeks. And pray for Willie, our person who gives out our service sheets, who's gone back into hospital with an infection. Pray for those that aren't mentioned here, but that we know need our prayers. We think of them in our minds. We pray that you may send your holy and life-giving spirit to all those who need it. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.